Images will also be uh, uh, over my head, and I know that they're on uh, the notes that you have as well. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, how we thank you for your word, for the power of its truth. We ask now, Lord, that as we consider it together, that, Lord, you will help us not only to understand it, but, Lord, to embrace it and believe it and apply it. Lord, these are things we cannot do in and of ourselves. We are dependent upon you to use us for your glory and bless us by your spirit. And so we pray for Christ's sake that you will hear our prayers this morning. And Lord, bless us as your people as we look now to the testimony of your truth. For we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. question, who made you, from the young children's catechism, has really the the simplest of answers. What is that answer? Who made you? God, right? And it then goes on to ask, what else did God make? And again, the answer is clear and simple. Right. And it then puts this question to little children. Why did God make you and all things? And the reply is? Very good. Yeah. <laughs> very, very good. We would have thought that uh, a concept so simple, so innocent, so obvious, and so true would prove to be the flashpoint. Who would have thought it? They would become the flashpoint for some of the most heated controversies in the world. This simple idea, this simple concept. But it should be no surprise, because on this focal point rests so much. Are we the special creation of a wise and a good God? an omnipotent, eternal being who created us for his own glory, to whom we owe our very existence? Or are we just the latest iteration of life in a long string of serendipitous evolutionary developments? One's answer to that question has to color his or her whole outlook on life and the world itself. It comes down to my being his creation, that is the creation of God, or my being a creation of mindless biology, of my being answerable to my maker, or only answerable to myself or some other senseless force force or entity. This is a critical question in part because God has laid claim to this work and all the prerogatives that flow from it. And when we speak of prerogatives, children, what we mean about that is we're talking about the rights and the privileges that uh, one has uh, because of a position they hold or because of something that they've done. Your mom and dad, for example, have certain prerogatives because they are your parents. 
certain rights given them by God as parents. And God as the creator has certain rights as the creator. Now we are told by the witness of the whole creation that God is its maker. When Adam awoke to life, it was already bespread before him as a witness concerning the goodness and the power and the wisdom of his creator to encourage worship and faith and obedience. You notice that the creation doesn't begin with man. It begins with everything else. And then when everything else is in place, then man is brought forward and before him, as Adam blinks into consciousness, is this wonderful witness all about him of the goodness and the power and the wisdom of the God who made him. In the introduction that God makes of himself in his word, the Bible, he begins with his proclamation that he made all things out of nothing. And the Bible ends with this fact being acknowledged as well. If you look in Revelation chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, we read in the four living creatures who are before the throne of God. Each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So the Bible begins with this theme, and we find it in the very last chapters of the book as well. In fact, it even runs deep, more deeply into the book of Revelation, but that's the clearest statement of it. And everywhere in between, throughout his word, this fact is highlighted again and again. As God gave his word by inspiration to holy men, the ones he chose to write his word and to write the scripture, they refer to God in reference to his creative power and work constantly. And as we think about that, well, we would expect to find it, I think, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and we do, even in some very interesting contexts. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 29, we read this. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. This is in the context the Lord just said, when you get into the promised land, you're going to fail to remember me, and you're going to depart from me. But if from there, you will seek me with all your heart, you will find me. And then it goes on to say this. When you are in tribulation, and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. 
He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this was, has ever happened or was ever heard of. And here God's work of creation is mentioned almost in passing. But look at how specific it is. It is referred to as the day that God created man on the earth. That's set here as a, as a, as a specific event related to a specific moment in time that can be used as, as a kind of measurement. And the Lord says, go back, go all the way back to that day when I made man out of nothing and move forward and see if there's been anything like what I am doing for you. The Psalms would be another place where we might expect to find it, and again, we do. Psalm 148, and we could pick a lot of Psalms here, but I chose this one. Verses 1 through 5. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights, praise him all his angels, praise him all his hosts, praise him sun and moon, praise him all you shining stars, praise him you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let, their praise, let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. So here again, this point that God is the creator of the world, that he did this, and that his, it's his work, and that he made us and the world and all things that are in it. And it is a recurring theme in the prophets. God says by the prophet Isaiah, and this is Isaiah 42, verses 5 through 7, and again we can pick lots of places among the prophets, but this one says it explicitly. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, as light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And here the grand theme is the work of the gospel, but how does God speak of himself as he begins to talk about this work that he's doing in having the gospel sent out into the world? The one who has created all things, stretched out the heavens, stretched out the earth. The Lord Jesus states it as fact. And then throughout the epistles, it appears in one context or another, until, as we've already seen, you get to the book of Revelation and it's emphasized again there. But what does this have to do, all of this idea of God being the creator, with loving and doing good by faith. If you look at the bulletin or the notes, you know that's the title of the message this morning, Loving and Doing Good by Faith, Part 1. And you might be wondering, what, what does all this about God's creative power and glory have to do with that subject? If you and I, beloved, are going to love God we're going to love others. We're going to love one another. 
not just in word and voice, but in deed and in truth. Dealing with this reality is an important starting point. We are beginning a journey to consider how men and women of true faith lived in the world and the witness that they were to those around them. Their example is set before you in Scripture for your education and for your emulation. Copy. And we're going to be talking about how we can serve God as they did in our own generation. That's where we're headed with this, going through Hebrews 11. We're not just looking at these people in the context of their times and what they did, but how, how they lived and what they did can be emulated by you and me in our own generation. And this journey begins with a discussion of the nature of faith. Because it is exactly your life of faith, beloved, that separates you from the world and which bears witness to those living without faith and without God in the world, who are therefore without hope of what it means to have saving faith in the living God, the creator of all things. And that's the testimony that we seek to bear. What does it mean to live by faith? What does it mean to live with a saving and real faith in the world? And Hebrews chapter 11 begins where the Bible itself begins and ends, for that matter, by talking about the faith exercised by believers regarding the universe having been created by the word of God. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, just some preliminary thoughts here. The previous chapters of this book of Hebrews maintain that it's faith that will save the believer and bring to him or her all those things promised by God to his elect. It's faith that will bring them to that place. This faith, as John Owen says, is faith divine, supernatural, justifying, and saving. It is the faith of God's elect, the faith that is not of ourselves, that is of the operation of God, wherewith all true believers are endowed from above. Now, this famous chapter is offered as further evidence and confirmation that all of this is true. That is all that you find in in the previous chapters about what faith provides. This is designed to show you that it's true. And faith will bring to all who exercise it by grace all that is promised concerning it. And that's what is laid before us here in these examples. And in accomplishing that purpose, the Holy Spirit gives to us, first of all, in verse 1, a definition of what faith is. 
And that's what you have in verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's a temptation to dive deeply into this definition of faith and sort of swim around for a while. But it's better suited to Bible study and uh, Bible classes, I think, in seminary or otherwise than for our purpose here this morning. For our purposes today, then, we'll just say this, that the exercising of faith, and it is something that continues to be exercised, involves accepting something as credible or true based primarily on the truthfulness of the one reporting or stating the fact. Let me repeat that for you. The exercising of faith, and it's something that continues to be exercised, involves accepting something as credible or true based primarily on the truthfulness of the one reporting or stating the reality. In this case, it's the confidence and conviction of the heart and mind of the believer respecting the truth of this divine revelation. Our accepting it, our our being convicted that this is true, what we read here is the truth. And that's the exercise of our faith. It's the exercise of truly believing what God says in his word. Not just accepting it, but being confidently assured that what he says is true. Fully true. God saying it as the same as me holding it in my hand and seeing it with my eyes. Faith gives being or substance to what is believed. William Lindsay says, Whatever, in short, we believe, whether it be past or present or future, on the authority of Scripture, is an object of faith. Christian faith has been described as pie in the sky by and by. You ever heard it referred to that way? Those believers, they're of no earthly good because they're so heavenly minded. And what they have is this hope of pie in the sky, by and by. The promise of things always just out of reach. Uh, always, therefore, more uh, than, than you can actually hold or see or, or has any substance. And it's therefore nothing more than the comfort of hopeful thinking or wishful thinking. Now, one would expect that sort of definition from someone without any knowledge or possession of divine or saving faith. They can't understand or imagine the substantive nature of that faith that God gives to the believer. And I don't say that to be demeaning or condescending. It's just simply true. They can't grasp the reality of something like this because they're not in possession of it. And they can't understand the the solid nature of it in the heart and mind of the believer. 
Many critics of our faith think that they know what they're talking about. Especially those who have grown up in the church or who have been around Christians. But the problem is, this is not something you can really know unless you are actually in possession of it. When unbelievers describe to other unbelievers what they think faith is, those unbelievers agree with their assessment. But for those who really have saving faith, their descriptions and their criticisms, they fall short and they miss the mark simply because they're based on ignorance on the subject. They think they know what they're talking about, but they don't because they're not in possession of this thing, this redeeming faith. And when they try to describe saving faith and the blessing it produces, it's clear that they don't have any idea what they're talking about. And again, I don't say that to be demeaning or hurtful. It's just the reality of the thing. When I hear unbelievers talk about what Christians believe, I'm astounded that that's what they think we believe because it's never really accurate at all. And it's not accurate because they don't have it and they don't know it and they don't understand what it is. They sometimes think they do, but they don't. It's sort of like me trying to explain quantum physics Only worse, because Christian faith is far more than merely a matter of grasping information. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a man or a woman or a child. And that work of the Holy Spirit is not something that's easily put into definition or into words or into description. This weekend, uh, the Babylon Bee had a satire piece on parenting. And it said that a recent study showed that the most reliable expert on parenting was the 19-year-old single Bible college student. Now, that was a satire, they were saying, because that 19-year-old single Bible student thinks he knows, Bible college student thinks he knows everything about everything. So that's why he becomes an expert on parenting. Um, Some like to imagine that the most reliable experts on the true nature of the Christian faith are those who have never known it for themselves, but have had some experience with a church or with Christians, who have been close, perhaps, even tasted of grace, maybe, but never actually believed. Many of these are those described by Jesus in the parable of the sower. In Matthew chapter 8, or rather Luke chapter 8, Jesus says in verse 12, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. None of these people described here have the experience of believing faith. They have a short time of believing, but it's not 
the kind of faith that we're being, is being described to us here in Hebrews chapter 11. What faith is, is best understood and described by those who by grace are in possession of it. Not by anything we have done, but by the, the grace of God working in our hearts and in our minds. One of the old uh, Westminster divines, Guj, put it this way. Faith rests on the most principal and infallible truth that can be. Namely, God's promise. What he promises shall without question be accomplished. And faith rests upon it as accomplished. So here we have a definition of faith, and all that follows is designed to illustrate the description given of the nature of faith here. And the illustrations all involve individuals who actually had faith and exercised it by loving and doing good by faith as a witness from, for the Lord God to all. And I think if we think about this, and, and, and we're skipping through the, the examples here, but our minds, I think, quickly can go to Noah as an example of this. Noah believed that the world was going to be destroyed. And he behaved himself accordingly. And in that, he became a preacher of righteousness to the world. The scripture tells us. By his actions, based on his faith, he gave a message to the world. Now, there are all different kinds of pictures here given. These witnesses bear testimony to the fact that what has just been said about faith is indeed true. And you can see in the effect it had um, on those who had it, or in whom it could be found. Now, we move on to verse 2. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Those, those ancient ones received their commendation. By faith, then verse 3 says, we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made of what things, uh, were made out of things that are visible, invisible, or are, excuse me, was not made out of things that are visible. So hard going from the King James <laughs> to, to the ESV sometimes. All right. So what we have here is a preserved testimony. The first thing to note is that the Holy Spirit says we have an extent, or that means obvious and lasting testimony concerning all of this regarding faith among the ancients. We can go back and we can look from the very beginning of human history to the present time and we have a consistent testimony all the way through that this is what faith is and this is the way it impacts those who believe. Those ancients bore to us, the passage says, an absolute witness. Their lives were adorned with a good testimony concerning faith. They bore a reliable witness to the nature and the blessing of faith. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, just go down the list. They all bear the same testimony. 
Now, if we look at this word, which is translated here, received their recommendation or their commendation, in another setting, it might help us to understand the intent a little bit better. The other setting is Revelation chapter 1 and verses 1 through 2. And John is writing and he says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. That's the same word. Who bore witness to? That you have here in Hebrews chapter 11 and is translated, they received their commendation. They bore witness to the truth of what faith is. By the exercise of their faith, beloved, these ancients bore faithful witness to the power and the blessing of faith, both then and now. Now, if we ask, well, who are these ancients? Well, the answer is all of those whose stories are highlighted through the rest of the chapter. And you'll notice that they extend from the very beginning of creation all the way down to the time of the writer. And it is one consistent testimony exhibited in many different contexts. But the the message is the same. If we go then and ask, well, where was this exhibited? Where do you find this testimony? Well, the answer is throughout the whole biblical record. This book, written by so many different human authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, contains one testimony concerning the true nature of faith. And as we go through this, that's what we're going to see. Tyler and I are going to present the the, the way that this faith is exhibited in them and how it practically played out in their lives and how it may, in the same way, practically play out in your life. It is the Holy Scripture, uh, rather the Holy Spirit in the Scripture, that gives them, the ancients, this good testimony, said John Owen. And what is it? What is this testimony? Well, we find that by looking at verse 6. If you look all the way down to verse 6, it says this, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. What we'll see is that these people pleased God because they drew near to God in faith, believing that he is God and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. That's what they did, every one of them, in different contexts. And we'll have more to say about this when when we get to verse 6. But it serves as a clear and simple explanation of how the people listed here bore testimony to their faith and how it served as a witness to all who knew or observed them, even to those who still look seriously at the character of their lives down to this very day. It's interesting, when you look at this, when you, you look at the testimony here, you'll see all sorts of things exhibited, don't you? You see courage. 
You see wisdom. You see love. And so on. But notice, beloved, it all comes together as a testimony to one thing. Their faith. Their faith. All these commendable and wonderful things are the result of a living faith. And in that rests their good report in their faith. And with that, we come back to where we started and where we'll continue next week in verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It begins here. Not with our faith concerning God in the future. That's not where this book of faith begins. This testimony to the exercise of faith. It doesn't begin by, by looking to the future. But looking to and concerning God and the past. Not God in the conclusion of all things, but God and the beginning of all things as we know them. Charles Vaughn said, to know that creation was an act of God, pure and simple, is a realization of the invisible of the highest order. If we believe that God is, beloved, if we believe that he is the creator and that he does indeed reward those who seek him and we may add find him and, and, and in and through the Lord Jesus Christ come to him then that faith must permeate all our life. It must have an impact on the way we think. It has to have an impact on the way we speak. It has to have an impact on the way we act. And it is that, brethren, which becomes the basis or the foundation of all our loving and doing good as faithful witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ in this dark and dying world. I am here, you are here, as believers, as a witness to the God who made you and all things. And it's your faith and belief in that impacting the whole character of your life that, that is the foundation of the witness that you give to those who are lost and who are in need. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8, Paul says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. We know that all that is good and right and true comes from the God who made us. From the God who made all things. And as the creator of all things, he has the right, the prerogative, the privilege of declaring what is right and true and good. Now just some concluding thoughts here quickly. Of all the things that make up your life, the one that will give you a lasting testimony, beloved, is your faith. The world might despise you. Enemies, friends, and even family might mock you. 
you truly believe, though, you are accepted by God, and by him you will have a good report. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. There are lots of ways that that can be defined. But one of the most important ones, beloved, is that you be honest with them. And if you are truly a believer, you know that you are the work of God, both in your creation and your recreation in Jesus Christ. You are the work of God. And that's the testimony you should bear honestly before them. Secondly, it's faith and not works. You see here that contrary to the thinking of many of the Jews at the time, it wasn't what these men and women did that commended them. It was their faith. You see, that's the whole testimony of the passage. It's not, look at what a righteous man Noah was because he built the ark. It's look at his faith. And for every one of them, it's that look at their faith, look at their faith, look at their faith. Their faith is what produced the work that you see. Calvin says the Jews indeed had some reasons for paying great deference to the fathers. But a foolish admiration of the fathers had so prevailed among them that it proved a great hindrance to a thorough surrender of themselves to Christ and to his government. By putting faith in its proper place, beloved, they are here, along with all of us, made to see what faith is, what faith does, and what without it, and that without it, no one can ever please God. Lastly, sin has robbed men and women of their basic dignity. We are not just the result of an evolutionary burp. We are the work of a good, wise, and powerful God. And there's only one route back to understanding that and all the benefits that flow from it. And that's through faith in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ at Calvary. You know, one of the interesting things here is that this list of heroes they aren't all that heroic in some regards. When you go back and look at some of the people here, you almost have to ask yourself, what exactly <laughs> is the testimony that's so full of faith? And the thing that stands out is their faith. Their faith, not who they were, but the faith that God had given them. And the only way back to knowing the benefits and the blessings and knowing that we are God's creation is through Christ at Calvary. In 1 Peter 3.18, Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. It's through him that we're brought back to God. We can go out into the world this morning and we can think and speak and act with a sense of dignity that's not born of ourselves, but born out of the fact that we know ourselves to be the creation of God and the recreated work of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the message we bear to this dark and dying world. This is just the beginning. We'll move on from here. But we pray God will bless this to us as we consider it together in the days ahead. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we bow before you as your people this morning. And Lord, we are challenged by the testimony and witness of those who have gone before who by their faith bore a true witness. Oh Lord, we want to be true witnesses. We want to be those to whom people can look to to hear and find out the truth. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen and encourage the faith that you've given to us. That, Lord, we might live by faith and by that living be a testimony, a consistent testimony to the truth. Where we have come short, we pray for your forgiveness and we rejoice this morning in the knowledge that we have a Savior who loved us and gave himself for us and in him is the forgiveness of sins. And, Lord, we thank you that forgiveness is promised to us. And Lord, we can't thank you enough for that mercy and that grace. But Lord, one of the ways we can show that we are truly thankful is by praying for the increase and the strengthening of our faith. That Lord, we might live for you in this dark and dying world and be a witness to the truth. The truth that we are yours and, Lord, that we can only come to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's anyone this morning who is not, does not know this saving faith, Lord, we pray that having it described a little bit may make them covenant by your grace. And, Lord, that they would look for not just the knowledge of faith, but the possession of faith. A faith that fits the description here in Hebrews chapter 11. We pray, Lord, that we may join by your grace this long heritage, this long testimony of witnesses concerning the fact that faith is the victory that overcomes the world. These things we ask, Lord, and pray for in Jesus' name. Amen.